what's your first football memory and your first hero? My first football memory was going to see my local club, uh, St Johnson in Perth. I, I lived in the very northern fringes of a big housing scheme in Perth called Letham, and the club's ground was down in the valley below. That's the, the old McDermott Park. No, the old Muirton Park. Old Muirton, sorry. Old Muirton Park, yeah. yeah, which is down in the valley from kind of where I lived. And it was right next to a railway marshalling yard. And when they worked night shifts, the marshalling yard lights would be on and then the floodlights of the ground. And I remember as a kid, even long before I'd ever gone, maybe even as young as four or five year old, looking out my window, say on a Wednesday night, when I'd be sent to my bed, it would be about seven. And by nine o'clock, I was up looking out at these lights, thinking, wow, it's like some kind of wonderland out there. Uh, and then eventually, um, I, I was taken to the games, uh, first with my dad and then with my uncle. And I'm trying to kind of remember the first real memory. I remember we were had a draw, I think, in Perth against Partick Thistle. And I remember that we had had a player called Dan McAlinden and McAlinden had been signed by Thistle and he got the ball in the left wing and I can just picture the moment my uncle Billy leant down to me and he said, is that Dan come back to haunt us? And I, to this day I remember that moment and I was thinking, haunt us, ghosts haunt you. And it's the first time I'd ever heard the expression that a player would return to haunt you. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was probably, if not my first game, certainly close to being my first game. And then there was a game, I might even have been in the uh, dying uh, part of the same game, one of our players, a left winger called Bobby Kemp, got quite seriously injured, a gash in his leg. And as he was walking off the pitch, his, his socks were down, the shin pad was off, and you could see the blood coming down his leg. And I remember saying to my uncle, but kind of vocally, uh, uh, there should be substitutes. Now, it was clearly in the era before subs. And I remember a guy behind me saying, "I, you're right, son. And I remember that because it was the first time ever an adult had agreed with me about football, you know, because up until then I'd only had conversations with kids at school and my mates and, you know, guys that played football with me around the back of my house and that. And this was a man, a grown man saying, you're right, son. So I remember for those two incidents, I think it was a 1-1 draw with Partick Thistle at Perth when I was a young, young boy. And you remember Steen shouting, keep the head, Tom? Well, that would have been in 67. I think it was in the Lisbon Lions uh, run. Uh, so it was a league game at Perth. Um, and uh, and uh, it couldn't have been long after the Park Thistle game, maybe maybe the next season. And uh, basically, at that time when I went with my uncle, I went to what we would call the old enclosure. And it was right behind the dugouts. And the dugouts were effectively pillboxes, you know, kind of bricked into the, the ground. And I remember standing behind it and I was high enough up, maybe four or five steps back to see over the dugout. But you could see the managers when they came. And I remember Jock Steen getting up and he was already a kind of really famous person. You would recognise him. and He's always in the, the newspapers and what little television there was. And I remember call, him calling over 
another player. Now, in my mind, I've imagined it was Jim Craig, but that's partly because it was the right back or the right aye, right aye. half he was calling over. So I'm, I've said it was Jim Craig, but to be really honest, I can't actually remember that. But I do remember Steen just pointing to his temple and saying, tell Big Tam to keep the effing heed. And it appears as if there had been some action over on the... St John's no, right. we, yeah, we had a really tasty winger a guy called Kenny Aird and I think there'd been quite a lot of kind of him he was a wee bit like Jimmy Johnson and I think he was taking on Gemmell and trying to beat him and there was some rough tackles going in and I think that Jock Steen feared that Gemmell might get sent off now that, that moment became ultra significant as the two teams um, progressed, Celtic to becoming obviously the European champions, St Johnson becoming the number three team in Scotland. We'd beaten Celtic and Rangers home and away in a following season. And then we drew Celtic we all the way through to the League Cup final and drew Celtic yeah, were, yeah. at the time invincible and beat us one nothing. But what's significant about that game was that it was on a Saturday at Hamden and on the Wednesday night, Scotland had played Germany in a crucial World Cup qualifier and Tam Gemmell had got sent off for kicking at Helmut Haller on the arse, right? <laughs> it was a <laughs> famous fancy football moment, yeah, isn't it? And I remember being at the St. Johnson crowd that day and a guy saying, it looks like Big Tam never kept the heed, right? Because you steam, steam dropped him from the, the cup final team in part because of the negative reaction to him being sent off for Scotland, you know? Um, but uh, we got beaten one nothing. Bertie all scored, I think, about the third minute. And we, we, had a, we had a really good chance with Henry Hall, our striker, one and one with the keeper. And it was one of these ones where throughout the whole season, St. Henry was already on exactly. about 30 goals. He would have put it away. But the keeper went big and, and got it. And, you know, we had other chances. It was John Fallon, lad. Yeah, it was Fallon. Yeah, yeah, it was Fallon. Yeah, uh, Simpson was rested or unfit or whatever. But um, a great day out in our first ever National Cup final, you know. Do you think there's ever been a, a, a significantly persuasive sociological argument made for why Scotland, and particularly Glasgow, Edinburgh, Perth, uh, and Dundee, and to a lesser extent Aberdeen, produced so many players, so many great players of that time? Well, Is it just social democracy? Was it the first generation of National Health Service? Was it to do with public housing and development of schemes? What? Yeah, I think the development of the schemes was hugely important to that, uh, Paddy. I mean, one, one of the things I think that people forget about football in Scotland, because it is such a national obsession and has been, I mean, certainly throughout my lifetime, one of the things that you kind of forget is irrespective of any other dynamic, diet, health, um, you know, the kind of uh, the infrastructures, what kind of institutions were in place, people simply played football everywhere. Every single piece of, you know, grass, every single uh, street corner, if there was no pitch or if there was no one to make up a, a, a scratch team, you played Wally hitting the ball against the wall. And there was all sorts of Kirby, there was all sorts of other, you know, improvised games. And it was a national obsession. And I think simply because vast amount of people played the game, then out of that came good players, you know. And and everybody will tell you of, um, you know, schools they went to where, you know, half a dozen players went on to be senior and some went on to be, you know, big stars in the firmament of Scottish football. I mean, just in the area that I grew up, I mean, literally within, you know, the kind of two or three streets of where I grew up, um, you know, we, we had a lot of, for some reason, a lot of really good goalies. So, um, you know, we, probably the... Um, 
the famous ones were Don Mackay, who went on to be the Blackburn manager, and there was a, a really good goalkeeper down south, um, and he 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 was grew up in the area with a striker Kenny Cameron, who went to Dundee and Dundee United. Um, he was literally the next door neighbour to Don Mackay, you know. So this yeah. kind of weird weird sort of setup and things like that, and you know, I, I do I do remember kind of being able to go through the through the. Uh, estate I grew up in and be able to point where all the tasty players lived and everything and I remember there's a very odd very odd kind of story this but there was a guy who was a year below me at school and his name was Yogi Ogilvy right now Yogi Ogilvy was one of these wee kind of barrel chested wee sort of Scottish guys a bockle you'd call them they weren't not somebody that actually necessarily even looked fit or athletic but he had this inveterate skill he used to say in Scotland he could make a ball talk right and that was just where he's a brilliant ability and he was he played in our school team he was a year below me but he played in the as a primary six he played in the full team and he was just absolutely fantastic and I never really knew what happened to this guy he went on and obviously probably hit the drink and drifted away from football but he was the sort of guy that for me summarised what was great about Scottish football he could just simply he was an absolute magician with a ball and I vividly remember having a conversation not so long ago, about 10 years ago, um, and uh, it was with um, an interview I was doing with Paul Sturrock, the Dundee United um, player and former Scottish internationalist. And I remember saying to Paul, um, who's the greatest player you ever played with, right? And he was doing all of this, he was playing to the audience, and he said, well, I'm going to say Kenny Dalgleish, right? And he started to wax lyrical about Kenny Dalgleish. And he said, but a private conversation with you, Stuart, I think it was Yogi Ogilvy, he said, who he'd played junior football <laughs> yeah, with. Yeah. And he'd said, and, and, and I laughed, and I turned around then and said to the audience, let me explain who Yogi Ogilvy was and all the rest of it. And Sturrock just said, he was just one of these guys that no matter what you did, you gave him a loose ball, he'd take it on his knee, he'd trap it, he'd take a man on, he'd take two men on and he'd spray a pass. He was just one of these fantastic footballers, you know? And I, I kind of feel... That these there's a lot of these guys got lost in Scotland, and yeah. I think a lot to do with things like growing up, finding you know your teenage life, going to drink, uh, women, all, all the other distractions that there are. Just having to get a job at fourteen. That's right. Yeah, having to get a gig. Forget the yeah. people, yeah. people if they were poor had to get it. You know that was it. You, yeah. you, yeah. you went to university. You must be yeah. the first person well, of your your family to have gone to university. That's right. Yeah, and 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 easily the first person in the neighbourhood I grew up in. Uh, and, and university at that time was only beginning to become a credible place for football. I mean, I was actually, funnily enough, I played in the same university team uh, as a guy who became, I think, one of the very first students to make it in full-time football, which was Tony Glavin, who went to... Oh, Tony Galvin. 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 Right, sorry. Spurs. Yeah, yeah. He went to Spurs from Hull University, yeah. where he was studying Russian. Was he an Irish boy or was he an Irish? He was, an Irish uh, father and mother from uh, Huddersfield. Huddersfield, yeah. Yeah, but he was Irish uh, ancestrally. He played left wing for the Republic of Ireland. He did, yeah. yeah. And he played in that generation of the... The first generation of kind of, you know, the diaspora, if you like. You know, but Tony uh, played for Hull University and he was left left winger. He was was really good. And uh, he's now, I think, in adult education down in the... South somewhere maybe the outskirts of London and he's moved back into adult education having retired obviously a long time ago from football but but there is a very kind of odd little kind of uh, dynamic that comes he he was he was a 
class player. He was I, a star player. And I was just another student that was getting a game. And I remember when um, he was signed by the local kind of non-league team, Gould Town, who were near near Hull, Gould Town. And Gould Town actually, in the end, sold him to Spurs. They took some of the money, but they gave some of the money back to the university to you know, build you know, trip dressing rooms or something like that. But they also offered us uh, a couple of games that were, if you like, glamour friendlies with Gold Town versus Hull University. We went to their stadium in Goal and, you know, seven, eight hundred people turned up for the game. And um, my, one of my jobs there was, I was actually, by this time, a kind of central defender, if you like, but kind of pretending I was Hanson as a sweeper, right? Um, and my job was to mark Gold Town striker. Now, this guy was kind of elbows, arms, and all the rest of it. And it was only much, much later in my life that I actually realised he was Charles Green, the guy that actually ended up buying Rangers, right? Or buying Rangers history, as, as they would have it. And he was playing at goal. He was actually a pretty good player as well. He wasn't like, you know, a, a big galoot or anything like that. He had a lot of pace and skill about him and things like that. But um, I think it would be about 4-5-1, you know, so... Um, I think some of the kind of Rangers websites would like to know that Charles got the better of me. <laughs> <laughs> now, you've been doing off the ball for 25 years now. Yeah, and yeah. before that, or simultaneous to that, or coincidentally that, you've also involved in Nations and Regions with Channel 4. Yeah. So you know about broadcasting systems. Yeah. How difficult, or what is what is the kind of dynamic of, of broadcasting about football in Scotland under yeah. the shadow of the English Premier League? The big, big, big barrier is that, you, you know, there's a really interesting thing. It's been passed into uh, Scottish national culture debates, uh, which is a quote from, um, from the former Canadian president, Pierre Trudeau, who, who wrote a book called In Bed with an Elephant. And basically his, his metaphor was that Canada was this small independent nation in bed with the United States, which was the elephant in the metaphor. And every time you were in bed with this elephant, as it turned out, if it turned around, you either got squashed or kicked out the bed or whatever. And it, it was picked up by a, a, a Scottish um, intellectual, a guy called Paul Scott from the Saltire Society, who wrote a Scottish version of it in bed with an elephant. And it was about Scotland's kind of relationship to England having, you know, being on the same landmass. And in some respects, uh, there are whole areas of Scottish public life where you have to adjust, accept, uh, resist, fight back against the fact that England is the, the bigger of the two the two cultures. So 50 million plays 5 million in terms of population, maybe even more now. Um, and if you look at that in terms of television, it's to Scotland's detriment, I think, that we're cheap by Joe right next door to one of the biggest and richest leagues in the world. And therefore, you are always, always second best. And always, consider, if considered at all, you're so down the, the, the kind of checklist that it almost doesn't matter. I mean, it's quite interesting. Yesterday, we were watching um, Input. It was actually a Motherwell-Hamilton game coming in, and it was coming in through the BBC Engineering. And we keep Sky Sports on to see the ticker tape for results elsewhere, just in case there's anything that's worth it, worth the discussing. And we were waiting to see... Um, we were waiting to see whose result was it now... We were, somebody was away from home. I think it was Airdrie we were waiting to see. And 
they got to the end of the Scottish Premiership and stopped and went back to the English leagues. Now, you're thinking, well, what about the other three leagues in Scotland? Simply not interested. They're not there. They don't even report on them. They don't even have them on the ticker tape, never mind uh, any sense that they would give you analysis of them. So you're always feeling as if those... Uh, Big broadcaster Sky being the best example with a subscriber, they, they don't really care. And when they're offered a choice, they go for what they consider to be not the best game, not the most exciting spectacle, but the one that will actually generate the most eyeballs. Because, of course, they're a commercial uh, capitalist organisation, so they're always going with Celtic or Rangers. In fact, actually, Premier Sport, the streaming company, have literally said as part of their deal they only want Celtic and Rangers. They're not interested in who they're playing. So, you know, a lot of a lot of people in Scotland would say to you, no, you you, know, you, you look at um, Hearts versus St Martin, let's just take yeah, that yeah. fixture, which is coming up next week. That is do or die for Heart of Midlothian. That, that St Martin could almost escape out of Alcatraz if they win that game, get themselves back in contention. Hearts, if they lose it, they're going to be detached and therefore one of Scotland's biggest teams run the risk of being relegated. That fixture is box office. It's it's going to be a good game. Hearts have been leaking at the back, but they've been scoring goals. And anybody who knows anything about Scottish football is going to say that's going to be a much better spectacle than Celtic playing Livingston at Celtic Park. Do you know what I mean? You yeah, know. Yeah. And so there's you know, and and I think that in lots of ways, by virtue of the fact that a lot of people in um, London don't really understand Scottish football. Um, there's a tendency for them to just turn around and say, oh, well, you know, there's only two teams up there. And you think, well, that's not true. Uh, that's verifiably not true. Yeah. Or why would you have a league, you know? Um, and you've bought into the league, but you're being so hyper-selective because of your, I mean, literally almost alienating some people. I know lots and lots of people, you know, St. Johnson fans, Motherwell fans, you know, endless number of Dundee United fans. And they'll just simply say, you know, what's the point of subscribing? You know, if you're not really passionately interested in Wolverhampton playing Stoke, what's the fucking point? You know what I mean? Because you're not going to get a good Scottish game. You know, you'll get this, you'll get the Celtic and Rangers away, maybe, and that'll be it. So I, I don't subscribe to them. I don't. I don't think they do Scottish football any great justice, and I don't think that they're editorially smart enough to turn a game like St. Martin Hearts into a sea. You know, they're yeah, yeah. just interested, you know. And of course, they've got the economic power to say the English games seem to dominate, not entirely, but they seem to dominate. But So we'll move the Scottish games to the most ridiculous times. So Scottish games kick off regularly at kind of 12 o'clock. And ah, I think if they could ah, get yeah. them off at fucking 8 in the morning, they'd be on there. Oh, yeah. I mean, this yeah. we can't... We're in the car today, yeah. but if if this was a, a, a Rangers game and it was a 12 o'clock kick yeah. we can't get in and out of Glasgow on public transport. No, no, can't. To see him, yeah. so we do have to drive, you know, yeah. that's because of yeah. television. Yeah. On the other hand, I think you're enough, sufficiently enough of a social democrat or you're enough of uh, somebody who's interested in public service broadcasting mm. to have a commitment to the development or not even the development, you know, the fostering and the maintenance of a kind of Scottish public sphere. That, yeah. that is distinctive from a kind of hegemonic London-dominated model. Well, I feel I feel about that about a whole whole chunks of Scottish public life, not not just football. I mean, I, I would see that as being, you know, absolutely fundamental to whole areas of our public life, whether that's literature, theatre, whether it's kind of just simply political discourse, which is hugely different in Scotland than it is in England, just in terms of the debates that are being had and the kind of texture and 
tenor of those debates, just simply taking a very, very obvious one, the profound, profound difference in Scotland about attitudes to immigration, as you would have within the kind of London media, where the presumption there is how do you kind of factor in the kind of noisy Brexit argument about, you know, closing down the doors. There was the example just the other night on on Newsnight of some women, ex-National Front women, I mean, ranting racist nonsense on question time, on a mainstream... Unchallenged. Un, unchallenged, yeah. And then the BBC using it as clickbait by putting it out as a, as a tweet, you know. I mean, that's extraordinary. And in Scotland, a lot of people just don't, just don't recognise that. That's, you know, that's just another place you know it's not it's not us it's not what we want and and you know I so I think yeah there is is that difference a really good example which um which would kind of feel like I'm giving an example that's not uberly political and not certainly to do with our independence movement but Scotland is for the size of the nation really really rich in crime fiction right we've got yeah, yeah. tartan noir tartan noir numerous uh, numerous um, uh, crime writers, very successful globally, who sell books everywhere around the world. You know, Val McDermott, Ian Rankin, Christopher Myrick, you know, Christopher Brookmeyer, they're endless. I mean, literally seamless numbers of them. And as a consequence of that, we've also built up a very rich festival circuit. I've just come back from Aberdeen, where, where they've got Granite Noir, one of the, the big Aberdeen festivals. But there's also, as you said, Tartan Noir, Bloody Scotland, you know, the Edinburgh Book Festival. These things are essential to what I would call Scottish kind of intellectual life or cultural life. And as a consequence of that, I don't think that that's ever reflected through the British Broadcasting Corporation. Periodically, they'll buy up uh, maybe a, a, a Ian Rankin book and turn it into a drama. But the debate around crime fiction in Scotland, it would be seen as a marginal thing that maybe a BBC opt-out show might pick up on. So there isn't the quid pro quo of how do we see something in Scotland if it's a union? How do we see something in Scotland that has great cultural value and make that for the whole of the UK? That's not how they think. They think that's a Scottish thing. They can deal with that in their own local yard. You know, and there's a sufficient there's sufficient evidence of a growth of cultural products, particularly generated by fans primarily around yeah. football in Scotland. Yeah, with football forms a, a you know a huge, a huge part of the kind of intellectual yeah. cadre of yeah. intellectual yeah. life yeah. on that public sphere. The same things happening in Merseyside. You know, I think yeah. about the rise of vernacular singers like. You know Jerry Cinnamon yeah, or Jamie yeah. Webster in Liverpool, who goes yeah. everywhere with Liverpool home and away. Like yeah. music, football, um, forms of counterculture or subculture or subaltern stuff that you've yeah. been writing about for many, many well, years well, are part of a public sphere. Yeah, the public sector broadcasting does reflect in Scotland, but doesn't get reflected in England as in much. Yeah, well, one of the things that's uh, I think important to that, Paddy, is that the low to no barrier to entry of, if you like, the podcast or the audio uh, broadcast or the website or even the local pub singer where it's a low barrier to entry you start to see uh, those cultures succeeding over and above what um, people would ever have predicted I mean we see it you know you mentioned Jerry Cinnamon but you know you, you know, we've got there's there's um, um, Major Mustard. I think his name is. Oh, Colonel Mustard. Colonel the Mustard. Five. I, 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 Mustard. I, Are these you know, the drugs you were looking for? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, he, he's a boyfriend down the road that I periodically say that Colonel Mustard is. And and also, you know, uh, if you look at all of that stuff, you start to see that uh, what was once 
it's quite interesting there's a young guy Graham Armstrong who's got a book coming out next week I think March early March called The Young Team and it's actually about growing up in Scotland in the kind of lower level gang culture in, in his case I think in Airdrie in the area around Airdrie and uh, and in a way that being something that you can give voice to is quite an important part of Scottish narrative that goes right back even long before Irvine Welsh you know yeah. that the idea that you could speak in your own language or your own Kelman and Kelster Gray endless numbers of these people both highbrow and actually quite kind of well, even William these books were yeah. quite, quite often written in dialect they were they? yeah and they were often kind of uh, deliberately kind of telling the story of um, working class people or, or people that had been left behind by the system and, and I think that that's again something that traditional arts programmes struggle with yeah. they really struggle with you know because um, you know, tone that down no, don't, you can't use that word or we, you know and all of that you know and you're thinking what you can't use the word cunt you're in Scotland <laughs> you know, that's what we do you know that's one of the one of the I always think that the, one of the if you, if you live in England, as I do, although we're not English, we are Scouse, mm-hmm. and you're listening to Off the Ball at 12 yeah. o'clock in the afternoon, and either you or Tam says shite or yeah. ish, yeah. and it's such a, a cultural yeah. job. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's equivalent to having like, Tommy Tiernan on an Irish radio in the middle, yeah. of, the, middle of the morning. morning you know. night. Exactly. It's yeah. A, yeah. How can that be? Yeah. But as it said on the documentary about, I think it was um, Lorraine Kelly said on the documentary about Off the Ball, she said, you know, that, that's how people talk at the football, so yeah. why wouldn't you why talk about that? Why would you not reflect that? Why would that be... And in a way, what you're doing there is you're turning around and saying that there's a kind of management kind of chattering sort of class of people, mostly in the home counties, that set the tone and the taste of acceptability. And that has to filter down to cultures that don't necessarily share that hierarchy. You know what I mean? So in Scotland, I mean, you know, I, I, I remember when, look, with my mum growing up, I grew up in a Catholic family in, in Perth, and I know that my mum would be tolerant of bad language, you know, the odd fuck, the old, you know, you kick the end of the bed and hurt your toe, you'd say fuck, you know, there was no problem about that. See if I blasphemed in the sense of Jesus or anything like that. It was almost like all hell had broken loose. So even within this woman who was trying to keep together a good home, as it were, she had a different hierarchy than the one that was being handed down. She had her own kind of Catholic, kind of working uh, class one, you know. So I think George Carlin in that respect wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. So in that in that seven case, words you can't say in the Cosgrove household. Exactly. Here they are. Bang, bang, bang. So no, I think these things are important, and the more that you the more that you kind of have culture that that succeeds, and by succeed that could be anything like in a book selling, being noticed, winning awards, winning prizes, being bought and read by other cultures, being translated into another language. All of these are kind of measures of success. And the more that Scotland succeeds, then you know whether it's with its crime fiction or whether it's with its subculture fiction then that's good for us, you know. So you were an early adopter of the net. Yeah. You uh, advised people to, Channel 4 particularly, to invest in yeah. areas of the net. Yeah. Um, what me- what lessons do you think football fans, um, football clubs, football organisations should learn from the development of the net? Well, one, one, one of the first things which actually does connect to football was that I, when I was working in the early days of Channel4.com, which was our website, uh, in the days where kind of .com was effectively a press release with a bike pump and you pumped it up in the air and that was about it. Once we started to realise that there was, uh, if you like, passion centres and fan-based kind of engagement, 
I started to really notice it around Football Italia that British people who were, if you like, Channel 4 viewers in the main were beginning to choose Italian teams. Now, it was probably at a bit of a distance. My my sister went to university in Bologna or I like the, the you know, or Inter Milan have got the same colours as Morton or whatever it is they don't. But that type Aye. of logic that was going on, that people would choose an Italian team and that they would start to get passionate about the game and the people and then we'd have little kind of forums that we would cultivate and we had it there a little bit with uh, American football but particularly I remember with Football Italia and I started to realise that the web was something more than a top town you can you can promote your press release or your corporate values or your commercial values you can actually have a two-way dialogue where you're your audience um, and that was for me what was really the big liberating thing that it was actually about dialogue and uh, and the curious thing about it is to this day I regret that this never happened um, Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews when they were working on um, a Father Ted had series one or maybe even two had gone to air and it was dynamic. It was a huge, huge success. And they were struggling a little bit to write another series. And Graham came in and we talked away. And I said to him, do you know what, Graham? One of the things is that we've got Craggy Island. He was a very early adopter. And he had the Craggy Island uh, reporter or something that was called, which was the website for Father Ted fans. And he said, what's really interesting is if I put up a direction, the fans will come in and kind of do it and he he showed me one of them was a, a thing about um you know a mysterious character has arrived on craggy island how does Dougal respond right and people are kind of you know it's real fan culture and he said one of the things that i really really like is this young guy he said i don't even know who he is who logs on he's written this entire script of of um father ted and I showed it, I printed it off, I read it, I thought, this is fucking quite good, you could record this, right? In my mind, I was thinking, Arthur and Graham don't want to write another series, but what if we did the fans, Father Ted, as a special for Christmas, shot the fans script, and everybody was happy. And they were, Graham was particularly up for it, but one of the problems that came into play is, that I think by that time they'd signed to Hattrick, who were going, no, 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 this is not good for your... You know, you know, your agent is going to have to close this down as an idea. It's Channel Four think they're going to get a free script, and I'm like, I don't know. We'll pay you the full value of the script, but it's just a good idea. The fans, Father Ted, you know, as it turned out, it never ever really happened. But it's the one that got away because it was a moment where you started to see creativity coming from the fan rather than from the, if you like, the controller of, of knowledge or power or whatever and I, I love that about the internet even to this day even even with all the trolling and all the shit that goes on I actually just love that out there people are starting to kind of think well I can contribute I, I can argue back I can put forward my view I can get in touch with him because I know what his login is or I know what his at is or uh, yeah you know if I, I, I get things I mean you know put aside Rangers and Celtic who are, who are kind of subculture of their own but you know yesterday a throwaway line um somebody said to me uh tam on air said to me we're talking about a game going way way back 
and um, Ross County, Inverness had featured in the game. I, and you said they might have been the third, third team, team in the Highland league. league. Yeah, correct, yeah. Now, I know that before I even got home, there was guys fucking tweeting me going, were we fuck, we were second, right? And they were clearly raging that I had seemingly sneered at them. But that's that's what I love about it, because, you know, it, it, it says they were listening, it says they care about what's going on. It says they want to invest in the history of their club. They took time to research back. What were we doing in 1978? And they're looking in the old trees. We were only second, right? But that second's not third. Let's go back, you know. And and I, I love that about football, that they can answer back. Because football should be a dialogue. It always has been in my life. It's about whether you're chanting at the group of fans across the fence or whether you're shouting at somebody because they're bald or fat or on the pitch. All of that was the communitarian stuff around football. I love I love it. And I only wish only wish that the, the I only wish that the kind of anger that's there within Celtic and Rangers, you, it's very, very, very difficult to have conversations. They start, they flare up, unless you follow particular kinds of party lines. You can't enter a dialogue with a Rangers fan without conceding that they're the greatest team in the world and that a terrible wrong has been done with them and that Celtic are paedophiles and, you know, la, 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 la. Equally, you can't enter into a dialogue with uh, a Celtic fan that doesn't require some kind of recognition that Resolution 12 was a conspiracy and da-da-da-da-da-da. There's a certain... There are the things, Yeah, exactly. You know, the other thing about it... West of Scotland guy, life. West of, West of Scotland institutional public, public life. life. yeah. There's a guy who follows me, a.k.a. Cloggy, as he's a Celtic guy. And every single time there's some controversy, he'll come out and it'll just come up in my inbox and it'll be or in my, my feed and it'll say... You know, I wonder what Detroit 67 thinks of this particular scandal. Or is he hiding again? And you're thinking, wait a minute, mate. I'm fucking looking after a son with fucking autism. And you want me to fucking argue about the Nimmo Smith inquiry? You know, get to fuck. You know what I mean? You know? So there is a kind of way where there's a, per- a perception within that debate, isn't it? Of course, it leads to the implosion of Rangers and and and, and, and you know and, and and Celtics, you know, power over this era. But it's kind of led to a thing about it's not easy to have simple dialogues. I, I have a lot of dialogues, but they tend to be on kind of ground that's kind of. You know, there's there's one guy. I think his name's maybe St Anthony or something. Oh, like that. I see. Yeah, wrote the Kenny Douglas book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Stevie. Stevie Warren. Yeah, he'll come up with. Lots of kind of old photographs from the 1960s taken at Burton. And you'll come back genuinely looking for me to help identify oh, I who a, a third player is. Or you see, I think it's an interesting thing that happened around Stevie from the he, he, part of the Kerrydale, no, not uh, Celtic Underground. Yeah. And they had to come out of Kerrydale Street, it was another forum, and then, uh, and there, but there would have been an awful lot more kind of less parochial and Celtic minded which can yeah. be quite a poisonous place yeah. and, you ha- and it's, a, it's an invite only place yeah. Celtic minded so yeah. mm-hmm. anywhere you get invite only you know that you get that hyper actualised yeah. you know yeah. you get serious kind of id or an yeah. egg, ego yeah. and id yeah. but do you think that there's something to be I mean, I'm thinking mostly about Nutmeg magazine yeah. I'm thinking about the view from the terraces I'm yeah. looking at the yeah. raft of the yeah. open gold shop up here in Deniston yeah. where yeah. you live yeah. where you've got this new non-mediated 
fan based almost kind of foster or counter yeah. landscape yeah. of football fandom yeah, just think about the number of football players that are put on in Scotland yeah. think of the number of football evenings that, that go on for every club every it's club. astounding it's incredible I'm doing a thing next Friday I think it is and it's a fundraiser for one of our uh, teams Jeanfield Swifts or a feeder team at St Johnson Aye. and it's for their kind of under 16s to go to Barcelona a tournament things like that and I honestly I could fill every night of my life with things like that I mean I have to be really selective about it I'm doing it because it's a really good friend of the family that's running it and uh, otherwise I probably wouldn't be able to do it but you know you're absolutely right these things are just all the time and they're uh, and it just goes on and on and on and the pie and bovril. yeah the number yeah. of kind of ecumenical places yeah. of football yeah. chat yeah. Mm. in in Scotland is incredible too yeah, yeah. And the other thing about it is you can get um, very, very small um, comments which you can just simply drop in and allow it all to fester and be its yeah. own thing. I believe your compadre calls them Snyders. Snyders, yeah. <laughs> Snyders, yeah. One of my favourite Snyders is, of course, it's a, it's a proven fact that Dundee have always been the biggest team in Dundee. Boom, it just goes off it's nuclear right now for me there are two snides going on there one of which is Dundee United fans hate it and they will go through every single bloody crowd they've ever had and say it was a Tuesday night and it was raining and we got three and a half thousand and they only got three thousand two hundred what are you talking about Cosgrove get all of that Dundee fans are Cosgrove, he's the arch enemy, he's St. Johnson, what the fuck's that wanker trying to be nice to us for? So you get both the price of both, you know. But it's it's over really kind of banal stuff about how do you how do you actually define who is the bigger team? What does that actually mean? And you know, but somehow people get really freaked by it. They 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 jump to crowds normally. But there's other things as well about what you've won and everything. Aye, aye. You know. But you see, one of the things that you, as the last question, one of the things that you've always self-confessed is that you that off the ball mm-hmm. and you and Tam are producing stuff about the Diddy teams, yeah. about the Wee teams, yeah, yeah. And Jim Jim Spence said in the uh, in in the documentary, the great Jim Spence said in the documentary mm-hmm. that you know that a lot of broadcasting comes to ignore the yeah. Alois and the Montroses yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and the Elgins yeah, and whoever yeah. it is. And and, yeah. and the public sphere becomes dominated by one or two large clubs, whether it's in Scotland or anywhere. Anywhere, yeah. Or, or one or two narratives around those clubs. Because if you have, for example, Morellis and the cutting of the throat gesture, that moment dominates every kind of talk show, front cover, back cover, theory, thesis... And it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Meanwhile, Dundee United can be running away with the championship with the top scorer in the land and they're relegated to three pages in. You know, it's, it's quite odd. Very rarely, because of this whole thing of the belief about the scale of numbers, and this is a kind of West Central Scotland thing, you know, Celtic with 50,000, 60,000 fans and Rangers with the number they've got um, and season ticket holders, there is a presumption in the way that papers are edited, is that you have to have your lead Celtic story and your lead Rangers story. And depending on how big the story is, that one will dominate and the other one will be small. Even if it's guff. Yeah, even if it's... Even if it's made up. Even if it's shite, you know. And actually, sometimes they also put a a, kind of trailer for it on the front page of the newspaper. 
But you could have a situation. I mean, there's one quite recently where Brian Kerr, the manager of Hamilton, came out and said that he was a gambling addict and that he had self-admitted um, himself to the league saying, I've been betting on Scottish games for as long. I'm in breach of all your kind of credentials, but I want to come clean because I want to fucking fix this in my life, right? Now, in lots of ways, it's a really now story. Now, but, with, I, but if with, Stephen Gerrard that day had said, we're not as good playing in the wind in the second half of a game, that would be fucking windy Rangers. And they would fucking, that would dominate them. <laughs> Despite the fact that both Celtic and Rangers mm. pulling in, you know, 90,000 people say on a, on a yeah. good weekend, yeah. have gambling companies as shirt sponsors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. A club based yeah. on a club, so-called, so, so supposedly based on, you know, uh, you know, a society yeah. based to put food on the table of of the poor, of Catholic yeah. immigrant poor. poor. Yeah, now has uh, it's now is now, now a PLC and is obliged by law to uh, report to its shareholders before its fans. Yeah, 